It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Today, Senior Features Editor Danielle Turciano talks with Jenny Snyder-Ehrman, Executive Producer of The CW's Jane the Virgin, which ends its 100-episode run on July 28th. Then we talk with Howard Swartz, Discovery Channel's Executive in Charge of Shark Week. Stay tuned. Hi, we're going to welcome Jenny Snyder-Ehrman to TV Take Podcast to talk about the Jane the Virgin finale. Welcome, Jenny. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you, but I have to say it's a little bittersweet because Uh obviously, you know, the show... We're happy that you got to say goodbye when you wanted to and that it's going out on a high note. But, I mean, I think a lot of people feel like they could watch a couple more seasons of the show. So talk to me a little bit about when you're structuring the final season, um, going into it, for as long as you've gone into knowing this is the end, what was um, important to you about getting done early in the season? And what did you know you wanted to hold for the end of the season? Um, I, that's, that's, that's a good question. I think we wanted to um, play out the aftermath of uh, Michael mm-hmm. Jason's return in, in the uh, first third of the season. So that was important to us. And, and sort of uh, having Jane move through that shock and having them sort of see where they are in their lives now and how they've changed and and move through that. Um, And then the next sort of movement of the season was Jane trying to get Raphael back. And we've always seen her sort of being the beloved um, and never having to, um, not facing that kind of rejection. Mm -hmm. So that was an important part of the season for me that she realized, oh, this is who I'm meant to be with now in this this moment in my life. Um, But then... It wasn't available to her, so she had to work quite hard to uh, to get back uh, to Raphael. And then the last sort of third of the season mm-hmm. is their relationship as they move towards uh, you know the end and their wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's sort of how we structured it. You know, once they were back together, I didn't want to have a lot of. Um, I wanted to have smaller uh, obstacles that they could get through as a couple together mm-hmm. so that you could see how they were going to be working forward in their life and that it wasn't always going to be these romantic highs that there were going to be things but they had passed the point of will they or won't they mm-hmm. they were now committed to themselves and each other and their family and uh you know it, it wasn't a question anymore and that's how I wanted the last third of the season to sort of lay out so it's interesting because, you know, just talking about having Michael, Jason, at yes, the top of yes. the season, I mean, we did just have a final goodbye with him in, in what is kind of the penultimate episode. So yes. walk us through, you know, the the way you decided to close certain stories before the finale. Yes. So, um, well, I you know, if Michael was in the finale, there would be too much pressure on is he going to mm. stop the wedding? And that's not what the, the finale was about. We really wanted to, the penultimate episode, we wanted to take care of those big, uh, bigger movements in terms of our crime stories. And also, 
I wanted you to know that the audience to know that Michael um, is happy mm-hmm. and that he's he has a partner and that he's at a beautiful new phase of his life. And you know, um, telenovelas really are specific in that the good people get what they. Uh, deserve and the bad people get what they deserve. Um, and Michael was a wonderful person and a mm-hmm. wonderful person in Jane's life. And I didn't feel right to leave him, uh, it, to leave things without the audience knowing where he ended up and feeling in their hearts, oh, good, he found someone and he has love and joy in his life. And, um, you know, it's uh, played by Haley Lou Richardson, mm-hmm. who I love and is his uh, real life fiance. And so um, there's something really sweet about that, just for uh you know the cast and mm-hmm. and and um you know they obviously have a lot of personal chemistry and i think that you know she was so um she she i i just loved her on the show and i i like thinking of them together in the future mm-hmm. i mean it's interesting that you pointed out that telenovelas you know have an end and it's usually happy end yeah. um because obviously that's what a lot of people would want for the majority of these characters i think obviously rose is probably the exception although some people you know this <laughs> we've there were many, many debates about, about okay. how she would end. Well, I mean, that is kind of where I was going with this, just in the sense of, you know, the show has always had the element of fantasy, but it's always been very grounded and realistic with yes. a lot of things as well. So how much did you really debate with maybe not necessarily giving somebody an unhappy ending, but not putting a button on it and not closing it so much so that you, know, you can kind of imagine where they're going? I think... Rose was our villain of the uh, five years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were many, many debates about what should happen to her, but, you know, the sort of rules and genre of the telenovela won out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think having her have an ending allows for Louisa to have mm-hmm. a happier future um, where you don't feel like she's where she's out of that. Uh, sort of destructive cycle. Um, it, it it had to be something big and telenovela esque because she's our sort of biggest, most telenovela esque character in so many ways in terms of you know swapping faces mm-hmm. and uh, destroying lives and kidnapping babies and you know when you think about all of the things that she's done uh, over the course of um, our five years, uh, you know it's it. She needed an ending, and it had to be a big ending. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of a lot of thought put into that, and I just also want. I think it. I really do think it allows Louisa to to um, for you to imagine that she finds love, but maybe a little bit less toxic. Mm-hmm. It's probably you know <laughs> it, it helps Raphael and Jane breathe a little yeah, bit more as well. Yeah, that but she's even not out there. I mean, even Rose aside, when you when you looked at crafting endings for characters, how much um, of the finite. Did you want to put on? Where I wanted. You left I them? wanted to aim towards an ending, and I mm-hmm. wanted to close things up. Mm-hmm. Um, not that there's not that you know hints of future, but I wanted you to feel like uh, we've always been really conscious as uh, we wrote that we're telling a story, and that mm-hmm. that vocabulary has been very present um, between the show and the audience, and we're constantly reminding the audience this is a telenovela, and that you're being told a story, and you're in the hands of storytellers. So. Part of that was crafting the ending mm-hmm. and having, uh, uh, you know, all the threads that we've been weaving throughout sort of come together um, and and give a con- conclusion to the story. So that was always really important to me and to the writers. And uh, that was, you know, 
we would go through and think, what, what what do we have to still tie up, um, you know, and and hope for the most part to take care of all of the loose ends. Mm-hmm. So when you when you uh, leave the the wedding for the finale, it obviously kind of implies it's going to be a big romantic episode for Jane and for Raphael. But then, how do you go about balancing the family story with Zoe and Alba? I mean, that's always been such an important important part of the show as well. Yeah, the the way that we've left 17, mm-hmm. um, the, the second to last episode, is is uh, with Zoe and Roe right. m- about to move and wondering how they're going to say goodbye. And so that sets us up with the framework for the finale, which is, you know, the anxiety of endings, which we're having as a show, we're having as writers, we have as actors, and then also um, they have as characters mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, closing a chapter and the chapter being that these three women live within a few blocks of each other and and are always there sitting on the porch swing and they're moving into the next phase of their life. So I think having that structure balanced uh, the show so that you could have the romance, mm-hmm. but you're saying goodbye to something else, which was the, the, the original family, mm-hmm. that first, you know, Alba, Zoe, and Jane, um, that that part of life is is closing a little bit and moving into something new. And I think having that just provided us, uh, it let the show not only be, you know, consumed with the romantic mm-hmm. element, but really allowed it to be about the family a lot uh, for the finale. And that was, you know, so important to us. So when you have, like, iconic images from the show, such as them sitting on the porch swing, or even, you know, Ro- the way Rose dies is very reminiscent of the yes. murder in, yes. the, in the pilot. Yes. Um, what... What was the deciding factor for when you called back in such Easter eggs? How how much did you want to kind of play with well, bookending? We wanted, and... we wanted Rose's death to mirror the one in, in right. 102. But you I, know, I mean, have, overall, really. For, I think for a the lot of end. a lot of this season has been about revisiting certain moments mm-hmm. and then seeing them through the lens of time has gone by and how they've changed and how the characters' sort of concepts of. Uh, romantic love and connection have changed and evolved and um, yet still within this story that mm-hmm. you're being told. And that was always important to me. So the, the you know, we'll have echoes of the same colors and the mm-hmm. same setups that she's that Jane has had in certain moments in her life, but she's different now and you want to feel the differences as well, but still have that sense, you know, our our world is very carefully curated. You know, there's uh, the colors are very specific. The costumes are very, you know, specific. There's mm-hmm. just, I think, a sense of a palette all the time. And so part of the uh, the ending was about uh, looking at some of the images and mm-hmm. some of the, and, and returning to them. Um, and, reali- you know, understanding that you're, you're sort of at the end, but things have changed, but it's still the same story mm-hmm. and all part of the same story. Mm-hmm. And I think that was uh, some of the, the thought that went into what we were going to be looking at. And, you know, a lot of the season is about saying goodbye or remembering back to where they started Mm -hmm. for both the audience and the characters and seeing how far they've come and celebrating that. So when you kind of add all of that up, how soon in the process of working on this final season did you know what you wanted your final scene or your final shot or your final words to be? That I knew for for a long, long time. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So... How do you then structure it so that you make sure you can get there without if if things have changed along the way, you know, was it a process to then try to kind of figure out 
the ending wasn't the ending was not wasn't a question. The ending was the ending that I always imagined, um, and you know, pitched to them when I pitched the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, every you know every season had an arc and a theme and. Uh, you know, I'd think about it in broad strokes, but then you get into the room and you find so many other colors and stories and experiences. And, and you know, we've always kept to the bones of what the arc, mm-hmm. um, uh, what I wanted in each arc of the season. But then we've allowed, you know, things to grow and develop and the best, uh, you know, scenes or scenes I could never have imagined, mm-hmm. you know, without the writers and their ideas and like, you know, what they wanted for, for the characters, too. So it's not only what I wanted, but, like, what they, you know, what this group puts together, because that's what TV is. It's just this big, you know, group that works together to create something. And, you know, the... I think that's part of the reason why this final season was structured as it was, mm-hmm. so that we got through some of the bigger, dramatic, uh, emotional swings early on and then we can could get back to sort of building towards their romantic ending and and the ending you know where the family is at and and you know all all of those kind of stories um and you know a lot of the season was about Petra and Jane's Mm -hmm. relationship and how that had changed so much and how the this I think you know they'll see the show on on a whole is about this unexpected family and how big it's become, you know, and if it started off with these three women who are sort of like the three of us against the world, it gradually grew and grew and grew, you know, with her father and then, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, her son and Raphael and Jaime's, uh, Rogelio's parents and, Mm -hmm. you know, just, and Petra and her daughter. So I think it's about this family that was created, which is kind of like the family that's created between the people that are making the show and the people that are watching the show and that shared experience too. So it, it's sort of all about, you know, honoring this big uh, unruly family that we've <laughs> all created together and then saying goodbye to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a lot of the thought of the mm-hmm. last season. And it's interesting because as big as that ha- has become, then there's also Jane's professional career yes. added on to that, yes. which I love how you were able to kind of give her a win, in a big win, really, yeah. in that area as well. Yeah. Um, her The idea of her writing the story of her own life, yeah. is was that something that came up when you knew you wanted to, when you knew you were ready to end the show? No, or was I that knew always that, that in, was okay. always in the works. Yeah. Okay. And that was part of what's tied to, to you know, the DNA of the show, mm-hmm. um, you know, for there's again and and wa- wanting to, you know, honor the telenovela. There's a lot of and and uh, you know, there's always a someone who's rich and someone who's poor mm-hmm. and whatever they get together and and I like the idea then of um, you know Jane starting off being the one who wasn't and ending up you know, the big baller and Raphael being <laughs> the person who's uh, going to be supporting her mm-hmm. dreams. And, um, you know, to me, that's that's a modern fairy tale mm. um, in a lot of ways. And, and it's about the most romantic thing you could do um, for your partner is is support them. And, and really, we've put Jane through the, you know, she's a lot of, it's so hard when you have a big dream to mm. get there. And we never wanted that path to be easy. Right. You know, and especially in the arts and, you know, that's what Jane's in. It's like 
there it's just like a constant you know pounding of trying and rejection and trying and rejection and and how much do I want this dream and how much can I fight for it how much closer and you know we've given her little victories but yeah. then you know setbacks along the way and and um, you know, a, a few that, you know, you can't really live, I think, an artistic life without having a few moments where you're like, is this the path I should be on? Mm-hmm. Um, or should I do something that's more practical, um, you know, and uh, not all, put all my eggs in that basket? And Jane has that that moment in the middle of the night in, in the 15th episode where she's sort of like, maybe I've done it. And maybe mm-hmm. this is something that I'm proud of and I've written it, but maybe it's not going to find an audience and that has to be okay too. And maybe I have to find a new career. Um, which I think makes it all the more exciting and sweet when um, when she gets her big book deal. Mm-hmm. And, like, to me, that's just the fantasy, like, that scene where... Uh, the auction. Yeah. yeah. It, just, it just brings me so much joy for Jane because I just want her to be happy right. and, like, <laughs> successful. And um, I... It, it, and because it's been such a long, long fought for dream, yeah. I feel like it. you really feel the joy of the victory. I mean, I would say even before the auction, when when Mateo's reading and it's her book, oh I feel like God, that's the yes. victory. Well, so that, and that that was this, you know, that was the what? How will the audience not know a hundred percent that she's going to sell it and it's going to be sure. a great thing? Which is like, how else can the story pay off? And having Mateo read it, like there is something that Jane could hold on to that was good that came out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so that was sort of partly for. Uh, the you know the story reason and and you know setting up Mateo's struggles with reading mm-hmm. and then having him read her book felt very moving but also you could sort of believe that maybe that was where this story was going to go and yeah. then um saving a little bit of the surprise for the auction yeah um there was that great line where you know they uh they asked Jane to leave a certain part of Michael's story out yeah. and the narrator says he won't tell us. Yes. Do you actually have a piece of the story that you like? Like I have the imaginary thing in my head. Well, I was going to ask if if, you, if it was something that you had thought about putting in the show and left out of the show, but it happened to them off screen and, and no. it, it was all part of like a meta piece of your no. story. Okay. I mean, it's like something that I was like thinking, what would that be? And I would have to come up with <laughs> sure. a thing just in my mind. Um, but Something that was not part of the show okay. and was left out. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the show overall, you know, really did a lot, obviously, in the critical community, but it did a lot for the CW, too. I mean, it really put it on the map as an awards contender and and everything. It wasn't, obviously, your first project with the network, but, like, do you look back at this experience? Do you feel like it – how do you feel like it changed your position with with the CW or in this industry in general? Well, I mean, I feel like it changed everything for me. It changed me as a person. It changed my career trajectory. It changed my relationship to myself as uh, an artist. You know, for me, I always thought um, my skill as a TV writer is like I could go in and I can I can, it, it felt very mechanical in some ways. Like I could crack, I know how to break a story. Mm. Um, I know how to feel an act break. I know how to go into somebody else's room and mimic their voice, which you have to do. And I just felt like it was a good, I was good at this job, the job of it. Um, you know, the deadline and the pace speak to my energy and, you know, all, all of that. And I remember telling my, someone or asked me, like, did you always know you wanted like to be an artist? And I was like, oh, I'm not an artist. I'm a TV writer, mm-hmm. but like it feels like it feels like a job that 
and uh, Jane put me back in touch with like uh, just seeing myself more as an artist, which has been really um, a hard thing to say and own, but a, an amazing thing to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so it changed that. It changed uh, my confidence. Um, it changed, uh, you know, it, it taught me to trust my gut in big ways. Um, and it just made me believe uh, in the power, I think, of storytelling. And, and you know, it, it changed my relationship to what I watch and what I want to see and the, the understanding of what it means to be represented and to see yourself. Um, you know, all, all of that is something that I felt like I knew intellectually, but I didn't know in, in sort of an internal, uh, I didn't feel the same way that I mm-hmm. feel it now. Um, based on the responses to to Jane and people telling me what it meant to them, and based on my relationship with Gina and and the other actors and what they've told me, you know, Andrea and Jaime and mm-hmm. uh, Yvonne about their life and experiences and what the show has meant to them and to their community. Um, so everything about the experience has changed me. So all that being said, because yeah. you're not stopping, you have a new show with Jaime yeah. going forward yeah, for the yeah. fall. I mean, are there lessons that you can take from Jane for that show, even though obviously it's a half-hour comedy, it's a it's a different family, different network? Um, first lesson is never do 22 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because, oh my God, that nearly killed me the first two years. Um, uh, no, it, you know, it's really about letting um, the characters drive the comedy and the drama, and always, you know, never uh, never having a joke that sells out the character mm. um, and privileging the character and their heart and emotion above everything else, and then everything else, I think, is going to click into place, but really taking seriously their emotional life, and I, I feel like, you know, this is a different show that um, we're moving into, um, and it's a sitcom, and it's got different parameters, but as long as we keep the heart um, and keep the characters grounded in what they want out of each other um, emotionally, then hopefully uh, it, they will connect with the audience. So the the finale of Jane hasn't aired yet. The premiere of Broke hasn't aired yet. Do yeah. you feel like you have said goodbye to Jane and are ready to say hello to Broke, or do you feel like Jane's going to be with you through this experience? Yeah, I mean, there's been so many different moments of goodbyes with mm. Jane because there's, like, the moment that the writers finish breaking the last mm-hmm. episode. Then there's the moment on set when production wraps and you're saying goodbye to the crew and cast. Then there's editing, which is another couple months where everybody's like, what have you moved on to? And you're like, I'm still here, <laughs> you know, just editing these shows um, with with the whole post crew. Um, and so then having that last mix and that last goodbye – um, and then I think the final moment is really when it airs mm-hmm. and when the audience sees it and that, that loop closes and the response. So that that's the last piece that has to happen. I feel like Jane will just always be with me. Um, you know, I have the porch swing in my backyard. Um, but uh, the story feels closed to mm-hmm. me in a good way. And I'm, I'm uh, ready to move on. And it's a different because I'm not running the next show. Mm-hmm. So it's a different relationship, True. too. Um, uh, you know, I will be there as much as needed and help as much as needed. Um, but then somebody else takes it all home at night <laughs> and rocks it to sleep. Mm-hmm. So um, that feels nice. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank I you really for appreciate five it. great seasons. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for all your support. 
Shark Week begins July 28th on Discovery. We talked with production executive Howard Swartz about the cable channel's annual programming event. Howard, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me, Dan. Really a pleasure to be here. Um, how? Tell us the Shark Week origin story. How did it begin? So it's kind of the stuff of legend and myth. Nobody is 100% sure except maybe the people who are in the room. But so many people have taken credit for Shark Week over the years. But the uh, the origin story that seems to be the most consistent is, is back in 1988, the executives were sitting around trying to figure out how to stunt a week uh, during the summer. Um, and one of the geniuses in the room had the idea of let's do a week on sharks. So this was 1988. So they launched Shark Week, uh, the first show in Shark Week was called Caged in Fear. I think they premiered nine hours that year. And, you know, that was 31 years ago. So this is, you know, 31 years it's been on the air, making it, you know, the longest running television series in American television history. So it's exciting to be a part of that. And historically always pegged to the holiday. I mean, I think my memories of watching Shark Week were being at the beach with my family and then it would just be on TV, right? I mean, that's I imagine that is kind of the way that it was designed to function, yeah? 100%. I mean, look, Shark Week is a party. It's designed to be a party to celebrate sharks. And, you know, what we've tried to do over the years is sort of debunk the idea that there are these mindless killing machines. And when are people most sort of thinking about sharks? It's in the summer. They're all at the beach. People are congregating by the hundreds of thousands at, at beaches around the around the world. So it seemed like the ideal time to sort of capture people's attention and, and bring what's really truly wonderful and amazing to these animals to the to the public. What was the what was the early programming like and then how has that evolved to what you guys are doing say this year with it? I think I mean I I, I think the DNA of what was originally in Shark Week going back 31 years remains to this day. I mean it's 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 leaning into the research, it's re- leaning into the science. Uh, I think that's always been the goal. Like I said, I think the you know, the the key to Shark Week is celebrate. They're the stars of the shows. The sharks are the stars of the shows. It's not the scientists. It's not, it's, you know, not celebrities. It's the sharks. Um, so I think that's the, that's the consistency through the years. And of course, you know, as technology has evolved and, you know, and research has evolved, so has Shark Week has sort of evolved alongside with it. So, you know, you ask, how do you keep Shark Week fresh after 31 years? It's because the science community and the technology, and sometimes we we put those two together and and fund research with the with the marine biologists that we can then take part of and bring audiences along for that ride, um, or you know the scientists uh, develop their own new technologies that enable them to access new habitats and therefore they can find new shark habitats and and observe new shark behavior those sorts of things so. Again, a long-winded way of saying I think uh, you know the, the the core essence, the core DNA of Shark Week has always been leaning into research focused on shark conservation and just celebrating these amazing animals. And as as a programmer, you know this was originally sort of lean back viewing, right? You're you're watching it with your family. I imagine that is still very much the case to this day, but so much of TV has changed to on-demand viewing, to you know, digital viewing, to year-round viewing. So how has that informed the way that you guys approach and program Shark Week? You know, we still look at this as a big pop culture event. We want this to be a must-see event every year. And 
Um, so I think that's the way we approach it. We want people to watch it live. We want people to have, you know, viewing parties and, and that sort of thing. But but to your point, I mean, it is a new world. And so we have a very robust sort of social and digital offering as well. So there's, you know, content online, there's digital and social content available as well. And, you know, we have our Discovery Go, our, our you know, um, streaming service, and people can watch catch up there as well. But But again, I think, you know, we, like the rest of America, love that this is an event. This is our Super Bowl every year, you know, and you wouldn't watch the Super Bowl in playback. You want to watch it live. It's a must-see event, and that's how we approach the programming. Uh, over the years, it's been um, – uh, it's become sort of a pop culture touchstone. You know, it's uh, – Tracy Morgan said on 30 Rock, you should live every week like a shark week. <laughs> yeah. Um, love Tracy for that. What have been – you know, what have been some of the places where it's popped up where you've been most surprised to see it or where you've been more, most pleased to see it? it I, I almost don't even know where to answer, start answering that question. I mean, it's been everything. Even this year, it's a category on Jeopardy. Um, you know, so that's that's sort of surprising. You see it referenced in, um, you know, um, some Will Ferrell movies. He's referenced Shark Week a couple times in movies. It's uh, it's just It's just a part of American pop culture now. So it it's almost not surprising anymore. I'm very grateful for it. And we're very happy for it that, that it, people have embraced it in, in such a major way. But it's, it's everywhere from TV to magazines to movies. Uh, it's everywhere. Why do you think it strikes that chord with people? That's a great question. I mean, we spent a lot of time thinking about that. I, I, you know, I grew up in the Jaws generation. And I think, you know, I think there was something about that movie that really struck a primordial nerve in people. I mean, here's an animal that's survived, you know, every mass extinction. They've been around for probably close to 400 million years to evolve into the most perfect, you know, apex predator in the ocean. Uh, that taps into something. And I think people are fascinated by that. And I think, um, you know, there's a, there's, there's a little bit of an uh, of a innate fear of sharks, which, again, our job is to try and debunk that and to try and show that, you know, people are not on the menu for sharks. Um, but they are these amazing animals, and they are these incredible predators. Um, but I, I think there's a, you know, I think Jaws did something to the American psyche, honestly. That, that we're still feeling to this day. I mean. I, I mean, I think so. I mean, the thing about Shark Week is, is you know, because we run in the summertime, and because you know we're taking advantage of that time where people are at the beaches. It's always around this time of year you start hearing about more shark encounters, um, you know, in various places. And so, you know, again, it, it wasn't intentional on our part, but I think being able to bring that different perspective about sharks to audiences during a time where people's fear might be slightly increased because of the attention that the encounters get, uh, I think, I think is, is, is a good thing. Um, and I'll say, you know, you know, the, the media does love to, to, to hype up the, the encounters that do happen, but the reality is, it's one of my favorite stats, you have a better chance of dying uh, from a refrigerator falling on you than you do of dying in a, sh in a shark attack. So, <laughs> Wow. Okay. That's, uh, I, did, I didn't know that. Now I'm, I'm worried about refrigerators. <laughs> so be careful of Maytag. <laughs> uh, we, learned from, we learned from Stormy Daniels that the president is an attentive viewer of Shark Week. Was that, uh, was that surprising to learn? Uh, not surprising. I think Shark Week appeals to just about everybody, and the more people that can watch it, the better. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy for anybody who comes to Shark Week. 
What do you guys have planned this year uh, that is, uh, that stands out to you or that you're excited about? Yeah, so we're really excited. We have we have two really big tent poles this year in addition to all the great regular Shark Week programming. And, and the first, the big party kicking off Shark Week this year on Sunday, July 28th, um, is uh, Rob Riggle and his best friends, Adam Devine, Joel McHale, uh, Damon Wayans Jr., and Anthony Anderson. Uh, and they go on this uh, amazing, what they think is uh, just a cool guy's trip, but but turns into something different. Rob Riggle has something else in mind. Uh, he was in Shark Week last year with Shaquille O'Neal um, and feels like he wants to have his own Shark Week immortality. So he's sort of... It's almost uh, he's he's uh, he's for- forcing his friends into uh, into helping him achieve that immortality, and it's hilarious. Is that I mean, is that what's the sort of uh, symbolic significance or brand significance of that? When you've got people like Shaq and Riggle and Damon Wayans Jr. and McHale and these people who you know want to come in and be involved in it, it's. Great. I mean, it, it, for us, it does a couple things. One, it's like we're not afraid to inject humor into Shark Week, and, and we want to have fun with Shark Week. I mean, we, we have plenty of conservation shows. We have great science. We, we can experiment with a lot of different types of storytelling. I think what's so great about people you know, like Rob and, and that crew and some of the other stuff we're doing is they do bring an attention to the sharks. And therefore, you know, sharks are killed in the, you know, almost 100, a million, 100 million a year are killed uh, for various reasons, shark finning, et cetera. So anything we can do to bring that attention and give a voice to that, I think is a, is a win for us. So it's having fun with, with Shark Week, but it's also using, you know, that celebrity voice to help bring attention to, uh, to the sharks and, and how important they are to the ecosystem. And obviously, you know, in an era where people are watching TV while they have their phones in their hands, you always run the risk with uh, you know programming that is fact based or science based of stepping afoul of somebody and then hearing about it very quickly. So, what are some of the steps and mechanisms that you guys put in place to make sure that when it comes to the science part of it, that you are being rigorous and you are you know staying on target? It's one of the most important things actually that we do throughout Shark Week, whether it's a a fun show like the uh, the Shark Trip show. Or one of our, our you know science research leaning shows, uh, we work with I mean dozens of marine biologists, shark experts um, who you know participate in our shows because they know there is a veracity that we go through in terms of making sure that we are accurate with the science, that we are highlighting the science, um, and we invite them in to help vet vet the scripts, vet the shows. A lot of times we're just literally following their research. Um, so it's very, very important to us that we have that street credibility with the science community. That's that's job number one. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have been around for 31 years. I can guarantee it. Um, but I just want to mention the other temple we have, which is our first ever Shark Week scripted movie. Uh, so this is, a, this is a first for us. It's a two-hour it stars Josh Dumel, who's amazing in it, um, and also Tyler Blackburn, um, uh, Bo Garrett, Rebecca Graff, and Josh Close. And it's a 100% true story. Um, took place in 1982. It's a terrifying story um, about five people who were sort of hired to transport a 50-foot yacht down to Florida from, uh, from Annapolis, Maryland. They get caught in a storm. The boat, the boat sinks. They're essentially in a dinghy adrift in the Atlantic Ocean for, you know, six days. Um, and they do have some encounters with sharks along the way. What's the title? It's called Capsized Blood in the Water. Ooh. 
That's a title. And that premieres on Wednesday, July 31st <laughs> at 9 o'clock. All right. Last question. Do you have a favorite shark? Do I have a favorite shark? Um, I've never thought about that before. I You can't help but love great white sharks. I know that's a cliche because everybody's favorite shark is a great white, but they are so majestic and so amazing and so misunderstood. Um I just I think they're absolutely incredible animals and one of the most prolific hunting machines on the planet. So, you know, the way they've evolved over millions and millions of years is a is a phenomenal story and they 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 deserve our respect. They certainly have mine. Howard, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Terrell Alvin McCraney of Owns David Makes Man. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.